This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and Pete George of the Albion Analytics Twitter account. Pete, it doesn't get any better. Another defeat, one win in 12, five goals in 12 games, no win in seven. You can slice the statistics any way you want. Whichever way you do it, it's an absolute disgrace, isn't it? Yeah, it's been an awful start to to Bruce's regime and the end of Ishmael's as well, because that Preston and the Millwall game were were basically the starts and awful performances and awful results as well. So Bruce is meant to come in and, and improve it. And I think we're looking worse than we did under under Ishmael and the statistics back that up as well. So, I mean, it's, it's not looking good for the, the run to the end of the season. We'll come to those numbers in just a second, because I know you've pulled some very interesting numbers compar- comparing towards the end of Val- Valerian Ishmael's reign to the start of Steve Bruce's. But just want to talk a little bit more generally about... The, the the problem before us, because as you say, it was supposed to get better. The bottom line is Valerian Ishmael was largely forced out of the club by both the players and the fans. I don't think there's any getting away from that. The scenes we saw at Millwall were disgraceful. No, nobody condones the seats being thrown onto the pitch and uh, and things like that. It's it's shocking and shouldn't be seen at any ground. It was a poisonous atmosphere at games. I uh, Genuinely, I think it was getting quite threatening, quite violent. Uh, it felt at times I've seen, I've, uh, I've seen reports of other fans saying that, that they've seen quite nasty things happening at matches. I do think this is a small minority of fans. I think the general majority of fans go to games and support their team properly and don't certainly don't take it out on each other and don't take it out in a violent fashion, even if they are deeply, deeply frustrated. But nonetheless, the atmosphere had degraded to such a level and the players had given up. The players looked like they'd given up against Preston. They looked like they'd given up at Millwall. We'd heard rumours of dissent in the dressing room through the Sam Johnston incident. Obviously, Snodgrass had been training with the reserves, or or certainly that's what we hear, but certainly hadn't been playing for quite some time. Ajayi hadn't played for, for some time, which was slightly mysterious. And as soon as Bruce has come back in, he's come back in the team, um, obviously, since he's come back from the African Cup of, Cup of Nations. And the fans were starting to stay away. And, and Bruce coming in was supposed to solve all of that. And I was there on Monday night against Swansea and I'm looking around myself and it, okay, it was a horrible rainy Monday night while the game's on the telly. I accept all of that, but there are people who I've sat with for years who just haven't showed up. You know, haven't spoke to them, asked them why they haven't showed up, but there was a lot. There was empty seats all around me. The fans have lost the love for this season, for this team. 
which is deeply worrying because we've played our card in bringing Bruce in and it hasn't made anything better. It hasn't raised the morale. It hasn't raised the morale of the players. I saw Grady sat head in his head in his knees at the end of the game. The players looked absolutely broken. Andy Carroll was just staring towards the, the Birmingham road end, like he was searching for the meaning of life or something. It ha- just generally has not got any better, has it? No, and like you say, the players look demoralised. They have got no energy and the fans are frustrated, demoralised, no energy the same. That's what Bruce coming in was, was meant to change. And I mean, it really hasn't. It's put me off going up to Hull on Saturday and I was one of Gourlay's promises as well to reconnect the fans. You do feel like this is the time when people need to be coming out and fronting this up. I mean, you know, you're not hearing a lot from the players. There's not senior players standing up and, and being counted. And I think that is a measure of them. Bruce... I mean, he kind of had to admit after the game that it's that it's got pretty bad and that our, our chances of making the playoffs have, have pretty much gone. But some some of the slightly deluded comments that he'd made up to that point, such as that the first half was good, much much better against Middlesbrough. He was watching a different game to me. If he if he thinks that he's chopped and changed the formation, the players don't seem to know whether whether they're coming or going. And I've said before on this podcast, I'm not going to sit here and start getting on at Steve Bruce like he the problems start and end with him because the problems existed long before Steve Bruce. And we're going to get into into some depth of historically where the problems have been for Albion over over the last three years, really, a bit later in the pod. But in terms of Bruce, I don't feel like he's helping matters. And as I said on Twitter earlier in the week, I feel like he's thrown the baby out with the bathwater because the, the one thing that was genuinely, genuinely good and nobody could dispute about Valerian Ishmael's West Bromwich Albion was the fact that we were the best defensive team in the division. And he's chopped and changed. And now we look porous at the back and we're still not scoring goals going forward. So he hasn't improved anything in an attacking sense, but he's made us more susceptible at the back. Surely he's got to just get back to basics, go back to what we would the think the one thing we were genuinely doing very, very well under Valerian Ishmael and build from there, hasn't he? You'd have thought so, wouldn't you? And the old cliche, if you don't don't concede, then you're not going to lose games. So you've got a point at least. But I mean, it, it's true, isn't it? That if we can study the defence again, like we were under Ishmael, then we're going to start picking up some points, even if we're not going to pick up wins straight away. You've got to, I think you've got to build that defensive structure first and then work towards scoring some more goals to, to win your games because we do have good, very good centre-backs for this division. I think Bartley, O'Shea, Clark, even Kipre and... Well, and Ajayi, all five of them are, are at least good championship centre-backs. So if we can get them into a good structure, then I mean, we've got one of the best English goalkeepers behind them as well. So if we get a good structure into them, then we shouldn't be conceding goals at this level. And let's just dwell on Matt Clark a minute, because he has been the fool guy a little bit in the last few games. I don't know whether there's a concept that he can't play in a back four. If there is, it is it is a theory that I do subscribe to, to a certain extent, because I do think he is far, far better in a three. But the fact of the matter is, we are playing a shape at the moment. And if, if that is the reason, Bruce hasn't said that that is the reason that Clark isn't playing. But if that is the reason that Clark isn't playing is because the shape is not conducive to him, then we're playing a shape that doesn't get our best centre-half into the team. Because I've looked at the numbers over the course of the season. Most clearances per game, most interceptions per game, least fouls per game of any of our centre-backs. Whichever way you look at the data, he is our best centre-half. And he's not 
playing. And if the shape doesn't suit him, we really, as we'll come to in a minute, we, we, we haven't got much going forward at all. Grady D and Garner, when I looked at the numbers, was exceptional. His numbers were exceptional against against Swansea. He is the one shining beacon through an otherwise truly dreary game. And we'll come to that shortly. But other than getting a shape that gets Grady in the team, which I think is extremely important. The other thing that is really, really important is that we get our best defenders on the pitch. And Matt Clark is without a shadow of a doubt one of our best defenders. I think there might be a little bit in the um, theory that he's not as good as the other two. Looking at the numbers, he's kind of middle of the pack of our defenders in terms of defensive duels and defensive duels one percentage and the same for aerial duels and aerial duels one. So he's kind of mid-table there. He leads the way for slide tackles, so which is a bit more risky as a, a back two, obviously, because it takes yourself out of the game. If you go diving into challenges and you don't have the cover of other centre-backs but what he does do well is his passing and he's got the most forward passes with the second best accuracy I'd say trudging on on all the passing metrics he's probably our second best passer of the ball behind keeper second best central defender at passing that is so I'd say it's important to get him in especially in that three because then you've got the left foot I mean against against Swansea we really struggled to build up out of the back so I mean I think it's pretty important that you get one of your best passers of the ball into that back line to to help us with that and just on those struggles to build up Pete because uh, I, I, I I text you after the game against Swansea and my exact words to you and I'll repeat this for, for air were I felt like I was watching a rugby match at times because all I saw was sideways, sideways, ball going from one side of our back four to the other and then back again. There was very little... Pro- and if it did go into, into midfield, which was normally Moab, sometimes uh, sometimes Malumbi, generally they turned, couldn't see anything in front of them and went back to the centre-halves and the process would start again across the defence. And when you look at the numbers as well for the two central players that are supposed to be our threat, Reach has had the least touches of any player who played 45 minutes or more for us, which means Darnell Furlong, who came on and played 20 less minutes than than Adam Reach, touched the ball more than him. And the player who had the least touches of any player that played 90 minutes was Andy Carroll. They're supposed to be our focal point. They're supposed to be our central threat. And quite clearly, from the amount of touches they're getting, we can't get the ball to them because when it goes into midfield, it's largely just going back to the defenders, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mentioned it the other week that I'd like us to, if we want to play a bit more football, to have that midfielder that will sometimes just pass it around the back and keep possession. So it's kind of going against that. But what I did say is that I'd want someone in the kind of style of, of Romain Sawyers. I thought I'd compare him to, to our midfielders that we got this season, compare Sawyers from our last promotion season. I think everyone everyone says that he just passes the ball backwards and sideways, but in our promotion season, he had 9.3 passes to the final third per 90. And he did that at 85% completion, which is, I think that was the highest completion out of the whole league and one of the highest number of passes to the final third per 90 in the entire league. And when you compare that to this season, we've got Mo and Livermore who attempt 8.3 passes to the final third per 90, but they just do it at a much worse rate. They just can't complete the passes like Soyuz did. Mo at 61% pass completion and Livermore at 55. So it's nowhere near Soyuz's 85% completion and... I think we're really missing that midfielder that can play the ball around, 
sometimes sideways, sometimes backwards, but then he can put that forward passing into it as well. I mean, basically, we're suffering on both sides of the ball at the moment. We we don't look as defensively strong and we clearly don't have a clue how to go how to get forward. And what's interesting is that I am seeing a number of Albion fans who I know were deeply, deeply anti-Valerian Ishmael actually turning around on Twitter and going, actually, maybe we were better off. And I think you've been looking at the uh, our expected goal difference, and the numbers tend to tend to back up that pre Bruce we were we were better off. Yes, yeah, so I took a look at them and basically looked at how they um, like the three game average fluctuated over the season. So basically, what sort of the form we've been, and I've created a visual for it. So I'm sure we'll get that posted on our on our Twitter later this week. And it basically shows that as Ishmael was getting sacked to when Bruce took over, there was a massive drop in form. So that started off with the, the Millwall and Preston games and then the Sheffield United game. And since Bruce has taken over, it's kind of stayed down there. I think we're And we're just just it. just on that, Pete, is it is it worth saying and does what you've seen from the analytics back this up that the Preston and Millwall games are rather outliers in the sense that the players had largely stopped doing what was being asked of them by Valerian Ishmael and what they'd been doing for him for the for the prior part of the season. Yeah, definitely. Um statistically they were our two worst performances and I don't think you need statistics to, to realise that when I watched them the players just didn't look like they wanted to play no motivation fans were obviously deeply unhappy yeah they were outliers so I mean for the whole season we averaged a 0.68 expected goal difference per game under Ishmael and if you took that for the whole season then that would tend to give you a, tend to finish in a strong playoff position if you relate it to the goals which is what expected goals is based on basically and under Bruce so far, we're at minus 0.26. So, I mean, that's a, that's a bottom half of the table finish if you do that for a whole season, which, well, I think that really, really highlights how poor we're doing at the minute. Not not digging you out here, Pete, but you chuckled at me a little bit last uh, in, in the last pod when I mentioned the words League One. But honestly, at the moment, if Reading and Derby hadn't had points deductions, we would be in real concern about being dragged into a relegation battle, wouldn't we? I think so, yeah. And... Like I say, the the form that we're in is awful, and it's it's not just that we're struggling to score now. Like we were at the kind of the early stages of the season, in the middle of the season under Ishmael, we're not creating now. So you can't even put that down to bad luck in front of goal or players not just being out of form in front of goal. We we're playing poorly, and I mean after Bruce's first games, after Bruce's first game, our three game rolling expected goal difference average so what I've just been talking about was at minus 1.3 and that if you do that for a whole season granted it was only for this this average for the first the first game um if you do that for the whole season then that's a, a very bad relegation level so basically going down bottom I'm just going to finish up this section with what is a pretty difficult question, Pete, but I'm going to chuck it at you nonetheless. Ranging around the Hawthorns after the second goal was a very, very loud chorus of you're not fit to wear the shirt. Are they not fit to wear the shirt or is it a tactical issue? Is it a, is it, is it a confidence issue or are these players just not simply not putting putting it in? Or is it a combination of all three? I'm going to be boring and say it's a combination of all three. That Some players don't seem to be 100% committed in their efforts. I think we lack players in quite a few key positions you need if you want to play a brand of football that's not exactly specialised. We don't have that number 10. We don't have a Roman Sawyer's type. We don't have a, a real goal scorer at the minute with DK out injured. Is um, Bruce deluding himself with 4-3-3 three, three, then? Well... I think so. I would rather, I'd much rather see it either a three-five-two or a three-four-three. 
But I think I think it's better than what four four two would bring. I think we saw that when he made the changes and brought Castro on, which I thought is a pretty strange change from Bruce to to bring Castro on for his debut at that point in a two man midfielder in a two man midfield. Sorry, that he was kind of putting him out there in a, a really difficult position. I think he would have been much better if, if he put him into a 4-3-3 to have that bit of cover around him. But overall, I'd like to see the three centre-backs and I think I'd like to see the three forwards as well because it helps us get players closer to Carroll and just more of our bet best players in the squad, really. Yeah, just on Castro, I, I thought that was... I didn't like that from Bruce. I thought that was really unfair on him. I mean, it's it's not a good atmosphere at the moment. It's It's a team absolutely devoid of confidence. And as you say... You chuck a guy in there who's not played in the league before into that situation. And yeah, okay, he's made a mistake for the goal. He's jumped into a challenge, but he's a kid. He's going to, he, he's going to do that. And he, he wasn't the only one at fault for the, for the goal. Our best player on the night, Grady Dean Garner, has, has miscontrolled the ball on the edge of the box. And if he doesn't do that, they don't break in the first place. But to put Castro onto that situ, into that situation, and he didn't have to. I mean, he's got another young player on the bench in Taylor Gardner-Hickman, who is equally as young, but is not equally as inexperienced, has had experience of playing in in big games. He might see it as some sort of a reward, reward to Castro. I don't see it like that, because that kid is going to walk around for the next, the next however long until he has an opportunity to make up for it. And no matter what you tell him about the goal not being his fault, he will feel like it's his fault. And I just think, I just think it's unfair to put that on a kid at, at nil-nil where you, uh, you are six without a win, you're barely scoring a goal, and you, you put him on into the centre of midfield, in a midfield that is not particularly dynamic. There's not a lot of players in there to support him either. You put him on in that situation. Am I being harsh on Bruce in saying, I think he was really, really unfair on the young lad to put him into that situation? I completely agree. Um, I think if he brought him on and stuck with the 4-3-3, the three, three, where he's got Moat as a Moat and Malumbi probably, I'd have brought him up for reach if we going for that 4-3-3. Mullenby and, Re- and uh, Moet, sorry, would provide him with that bit more defensive cover. Cover, But in a game where both teams seem to want to win at the end and it's going to be up and down the pitch, both teams attacking, I think into a two-man midfield for your league debut is just, I mean, it's suicide from, from Bruce. I'd like to see Castro, I think he did some promising things and I'd like to see him maybe even start the next game, not in a two-man midfield where he's just lacking cover. And if he does make one rash challenge that takes him out of the game, then there's a lack of players covering him behind. I think if he makes that challenge when we've got more men behind the ball, then it doesn't lead to a goal. And he can't even have reason to think that the goal's on him. And I think this is where, and I've seen a lot of people throwing around the words, just chuck the kids in. Just chuck the kids in for the rest of the season. The season's gone anyway, blah, blah, blah. This is where you have to be very, very careful for me with this kind of talk. Because... I understand why people are saying it. They want to see uh, see the talented youngsters that we've got within the squad just given a go. But you can break young players by doing that. I think Castro is probably, unless he's extremely strong mentally, is probably feeling pretty awful about himself at the moment and probably will do for a little while. I think you can pl- uh, you can probably put forward players in with less less risk. So you could put people like Fellows in there into one of the attacking slots because it's less likely that they they're going to do something to cost you a goal. You could probably put Taylor Gardner Hickman in purely for the reason that I think he's played in a football to know that if you make a mistake you don't need to carry it with you. You just you, you I think he's probably a strong enough lad at this point with with enough, enough games behind him to make a mistake 
pick himself up and go again. Because I mean, for example, I think I think I'm right in saying against Huddersfield, it was him that let his man run off him. But he, he hasn't he hasn't dwelt on that mistake. He's looked good every time he's he, he's played since. So I think he's strong enough to deal with it. But I don't think you can be throwing entirely inexperienced players into either the centre of midfield or in the t- case of someone like Caleb Taylor, who Steve Bruce talked up this week, into the centre of defence. Not that he's done that yet, but I feel like that was the, he's the next cab off the rank and I just wouldn't be putting him in. And the other thing with Caleb Taylor is that we've got five senior centre-backs that are, like I said earlier, at least good good players in the championship so it's it's difficult for a manager to to put in a young defender that's that's not played at this level before into a team because ultimately it's the it's the results that that matter for the manager so he needs results and it's a it's a risk to put especially in the case of of taylor to put in ahead of these five senior center backs that we've already got that we know are good players at this level i'd love to see that youth develop and get minutes in the first team but ultimately it is a risk especially when you've got good players ahead of them I just wouldn't be putting any young players into those sort of like spine positions of the team that centre halves, the the sitting central midfielders. Like I say, Taylor Gardner Hickman, I don't consider to be a young player at this point. I think he's played enough football and proved enough to show that he can go into a team. I wouldn't be putting one as our lead centre forward. I know some people have called for Reese Cleary. I wouldn't be uh, I, I wouldn't be ha- having him in there either. As I say, maybe in those wide forward positions. I might consider fellows, but I think he's he's about the only one. I just don't think, and it's not it's not the fact whether whether I think they're good enough or whether I think they're ready. And all this talk about if you're good enough, you're old enough, blah blah blah. Yeah, but you, you've got to be able to mentally handle that side of the game. And I just think I I think we're really 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 going to need these players next year. By the way, I, I like to think there will be a bit of a turnover in the summer. I like to think that some of these supposed senior lads who've let us down quite heavily will go. And I think we're going to need to call upon, probably Taylor will play a little bit, although, as you say, we've got quite extensive options at centre-half. I think Fellows will play a lot. I think Taylor Gardner-Hickman will play a lot. I'm, yeah, I'm not sure about Castro at the moment. I mean, he's kind of been in and out of the mix. Uh, obviously, Val didn't trust him. He wasn't putting him on, on the bench. So it'd be interesting to see whether he gets involved. But there's clearly a few that could get involved. If Reese Cleary is still a West Bromwich Albion player, which is obviously highly debatable whether he will be or not, I think he will be involved next season if he's still here. But I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't break them by putting them into this really, really awful run of form and making them feel some ownership and responsibility for it, Pete. No, I wouldn't either, really. I mean, there's Gardner Hickman, obviously, and maybe Castro, that, well, and, and Tulloch, I suppose, that you can maybe start to get a couple of minutes to. But, I mean, I wouldn't be starting them and definitely not starting them every single game because they're still going to be, even if the fans aren't directly booing them and they're aiming the boos at the more senior players, That I mean, those young players are still going to be out there. It's not going to be easy to take for them. And, I mean, that. They're not going to enjoy their football, really. You want them, ideally, we want them fresh for next season. Hopefully, they've gained a little bit more experience, but uh, you, you don't really want that atmosphere within the club to kind of spread to them and bring them down because. Well, I mean, Castro, on his debut, has had to hear, you're not fit to wear the shirt sung at him. And I know it wasn't directed at him and it was directed at the ones who've let us down all season, but he's still standing out there in the shirt when that song is being sung. And, and that's. 
that's the situation at the moment if you chuck these players in. Exactly. And that, I mean, that must be tough to take, even if you only, that is your debut and you know that it's, it's not being directed at you. It's still, still tough to take. And the under 23s have, have had a very good season so far. So I imagine the, the mood within the, that squad is, is pretty high. So you don't really want to, to be bringing that down by shifting them all into the first team and having to play in that kind of atmosphere and in this kind of form. We've definitely got a big, big summer ahead of us. We have ended up with a squad that is unbalanced, isn't fit for purpose. As I say, the fans say, not fit to wear the shirt. And, uh, you know, I was there and I agree with them. I I don't think think a lot of those players are fit to wear the shirt. But it begs the question, how did we get here, Pete? And I just wanted to have a a little look at this because I've I've mentioned Luke Dowling before on this pod and uh, and anybody who follows me on, on Twitter will know that I am the furthest thing from a fan of his. So I wanted to have a look at his record as sporting and technical director. He came in in September 2018. So the 2018 window where we brought in Johnston, Bartley, Townsend, amongst others, was nothing to do with him. But the the job he was tasked with was replacing these players. These are the players that have gone out for a multitude of reasons. I'm not blaming him for for these players going, but these are the players that he had to re- had to replace during his role as sporting and technical director. Rondon, Rodriguez, Dawson, Morrison, Brunt, Hagazzi, Myhill, and then just before uh, they're the ones that have gone out on Dowling's watch, and then just before, literally that summer where he came in, we'd also lost Jacob. Evans, McCauley, Foster. On top of that, thanks to, partly at least, thanks to some of his tinkering with the youth system, we've also lost Ferguson, Rogers, Barry, and a number of others who might be involved in the first team picture. Sam Field has obviously gone partly down to injuries and lack of opportunities in the Premier League. But again, he's another one that I would have liked to have seen given more opportunities. But basically what you're looking at there is a Premier League squad, guys that have played a lot of Premier League football for this football club, that Dowling's recruitment team was tasked with replacing. And it's a very tough job, in all fairness, but all of these players were found and they weren't players that we spent huge sums of money on. We got our money back on Rondon. We got our money back on uh, on Jay Rodriguez. We made a profit on uh, on Dawson. Morrison and Brunt, we could have sold at any point during their peak years for way, way more than we bought them for. Hagatsi, I think we made a very modest profit on. Jakob was another one who, again, at his peak, we could have sold for way more than we bought him for. Evans, if we'd actually sold him in the summer window when the bids seemed to be on the table for him, again, we would have made way more than we paid for him. Macaulay was undoubtedly huge amounts of value and I'm certain there was a period in Ben Foster's tenure as Albion goalkeeper when we could have sold him for way more than we bought him for so they were all value signings they were all signings that we made and they improved now let's look at the major signings during Luke Dowling's three years just under three years as sporting and technical director these are all the ones that I either think that either cost us a relatively modest transfer fee or they came in on a free but probably cost us fairly decent wages I mean obviously ignoring loans here because obviously you've got no asset in a loan it's not like those ones that I've just rattled off to you that you've got resale value if you do choose to sell them at any given point loans don't count in that sense so I'm not I'm not including loans in this this is his purchases Grant Grady Pereira Button Kipre 
Snodgrass, Ivanovic, Robinson, Zahor, Austin, Sawyers, Furlong, Ajay, Grisicki. Just to remind you, those players are supposed to replace Rondron, Rodriguez, Dawson, Morrison, Brunt, Hagazzi, Myhill, Jakob, Evans, McCauley, Foster. Now, for me, there is absolutely no comparison there. But I also thought, right, OK, let's just star next to them the ones that I think have been a success out of those. I would say Pereira, obviously, was a huge success. I think Sawyer's certainly for what he contributed to the promotion season. Obviously, it didn't work in the Premier League, but I think was it was definitely a success. And then maybe you can make an argument that Furlong and Ajayi were both successes in the first in, in the promotion season. OK in the Premier League, decent in the Premier League, and obviously have absolutely gone off a cliff this season. So there's anywhere between one and four of those signings that were supposed to replace a pretty well-established Premier League club that have been successes. And outside of that, there is so much money wasted there on transfer fees and on wages. I mean, purely alone, if you take Grant, Grady and Zahor, that is nearly 40 million quid. Now, Pete, that ain't 40 million pounds worth of player. No, it's not. And I think Zahor, it kind of stands out just purely on the price that we've paid for him. We paid 8 million. That's Mateus Pereira was cheaper than that. And even if you just look at the injury record of Zahor, I, I researched it today and it, it looked like he's he's missed about 300 days in his three-year span at the club. So that's, I mean, that's almost one in three, isn't it? So he spent a lot of time um, injured, which obviously isn't useful and he's not played many games. I mean, Austin as well, he was a pretty poor signing, cost almost four million and was probably on very high wages. Uh, he scored six non-penalty goals in... 18 full matches. So, I mean, that, that wasn't bad, but I mean, it's not it's not what you'd expect from a, a striker that you, you're paying a lot of money for in wages and a, a decent transfer fee as well. And then the other... Well, also, side, you wouldn't you, you wouldn't expect that striker to only only play 18 full matches either if you're paying that kind of money for him, which is, which is reflective of the performances we obviously got out of him. Exactly. And then he barely played, I'm not sure he even did play when we got into the Premier League. And after that, there was no retail value either. So, I mean, we spent a good transfer fee, probably on high wages for, for Austin to score six goals and, and not give us anything when, when we want to move them on. It's just, I mean, it's poor poor business and poor planning because you need those players that are going to increase in value. And that's kind of something that was that I noted for our signings we made in the summer that we did get promoted to the Premier League, that they all seem to be just kind of known names I mean, felt like Village was behind a lot of them, but half that we wanted to get the, the promotion squad back together. So Robinson, Grady, Kravinovic again, those sort of players that you want to just keep on, which just about got us promoted. And probably be fair to say that they're not they're not a squad of players that are going to keep you in the Premier League. But we didn't have any kind of unknown players where in previous seasons we had obviously Pereira, Eunice Olsons, you have Claudio Jacobs, you have Zoltan Gera. Zoltan Gera, Gareth McCauley's. Yusuf Malumbu's, just those sort of players. Peter Odenwingi. Peter Odenwingi, brilliant example. Players that you've not really heard of. And is it points out that you've got a, a decent recruitment team that are going to find these players that, I mean, the players that you haven't heard of tend to be cheaper players. Well, also, yeah. also Pete, just on that, I mean, we, we, na- we named a lot of foreign players there, but it's worth, it's worth noting that also 
we went and found value in, in the English market as well. Billy Jones, Gareth McCauley, Ben Foster was only about two and a half million. Shane Long, we brought in and sold him for more than we, than we bought him for. Liam Ridgewell, we got a couple of really good seasons out of. Nicky Shorey was another one who, again, was was an important part of uh, staying up at, at one point. We went through a stage where not only did we find value abroad in your Jacobs, your Malumbus, your your Peter Rod and Wingies, people like that, but we were we, we were we were shopping well and cheaply in the British market as well. And I don't see any of that as I mean, I've just rattled off that list there. Genuinely, right? We, we've we've obviously sold Pereira and a lot of the rest of these are still at the club or Pereira is the only one who of that list has at present left the club and made us more money than we paid for him. And of the of the ones who remain at the club, who could we sell tomorrow for more than we paid for them? Maybe, maybe we could make a modest profit on Furlong or a Jai if we sold them tomorrow. We wouldn't make a profit on any of the rest of them. Yet I've just rattled off a load of names there, all of whom increased in value whilst at West Bromwich Albion. The, the recruitment team that Luke Dowling dismantled and replaced with his own, compared to the one that existed during Dowling's reign as sporting and director and still exists after he has gone. The, it is a night and day comparison between the quality of the, of the two because the guys who were there before that were geniuses at finding value. We are simply not finding value. And we're still not finding value because of the players that we brought in in the summer. How many of them are going up uh, going up in value? Moat was obviously a free, but I mean, he's not. No, who's who's really going to want to take him? Reach. I mean, goodness me, we haven't even paid transfer fees for players, and I still can't tell you that we'd make a profit on any of them. Yeah, and that kind of negates the fact that players that you sign on a free, you tend to pay a fairly hefty signing on fee to them and their agent. So it kind of makes up for the, the transfer fee. I'd say the only player that has really gone up in value, and you can say that with confidence, is Connor Townsend. But again, that he was brought in. I think he, he was, was pre-Dowling. He was yeah, pre-Dowling. He was the summer Dowling. when Dowling came in. Exactly. So, um, well, it's going back to your point, really, that we've not been buying value. Grant and Grady, maybe they will turn out to be good, but they're still expensive signings. And will they go above what we've paid for them? I'm not sure. I think, I mean, we've not not got ourselves any real real bargains. I think Pereira was one, but apart from that, that's the only one of the, the Dowling era, I'm afraid. And it simply begs the question, we've got a big summer ahead of us. Unless we find some really, really top recruitment guys, or I mean, go on our hands and knees, begging, begging to the guys that we, that we let go, who did such a good job before to come back. Would you actually trust the existing recruitment team to have what is without a shadow of a doubt for me, the biggest summer for 22 years that this, this football club has had? Because I think Luke Dowling, when we look for reasons why we are where we are, Luke Dowling is a big, big reason. He has decimated this club. Don't get me wrong. Lie is a big part of it as well. He's caused a lot of problems. The the chopping and changing of managers and bringing in different types of manager has led to this unbalanced squad and has caused a lot of the turnover in the squad. But the simple fact is, when we have bought players under Luke Dowling, they have not improved generally or they have not increased in value that much is absolutely certain Pereira being the only outlier in that he's the one gem that he's brought in so you've got a recruitment team with that track record behind it do you trust them to have the biggest summer 
this football club has had for over 20 years? I think any fan would struggle to say that they do, really. You can only really go on the track record because I doubt any fan really knows the history of any of the, the recruitment team, whether they've done well at past clubs, but at the Albion, they've not. We've had Pereira, but apart from Mateus, then, then it's, we've had limited success, really. We've had, like you say, Furlong and Ajayi, Sawyers, who have been decent signings, but maybe we can we can break even on them, but we're, we're hardly going to sell them for a massive profit, and they've hardly been world beaters, so overall the success of the recruitment hasn't been well, there. And, and Sawyers, by the way, didn't exactly take a, take a rocket scientist, given that given that we'd had him as as a young player and we knew exactly what we were getting. It wasn't it wasn't one where where we had to go and do extensive scouting to know what we what we were getting. I mean, we we even knew everything personality wise about the lad because every there was so many people at the club who'd met him. It wasn't you know you can't give him that one on on being genius recruitment people. No, and it goes back to the fact that there's very few players that we're signing that are unknown players that tend to have the greater value. If you um, if you get them right, you can tend to sign them on cheaper fees and, and sell them on in the future, which we haven't been doing for the past three or four years. So, yeah, I can't say that I would trust them for the for the summer window, unfortunately. Well, before we finish, Pete, we, we, we do always invite fan questions, by the way, if you want to tweet them to us, Albion Analysis at Albion Analysis, I should say, is the pod Twitter account, or you can tweet myself at CJ Hall 83 or Pete at Analytics WBA. And that's exactly what Michael did. And he wanted to know, Pete, who we, we should be looking at in this big, big summer coming up. And I think you, did you zero in on a few midfielders, some number 10s? Yeah, so it's something that I've been working on to um, a tool that you can kind of apply to any league and identify players that stand out for different roles in different positions um, and basically do it pretty quickly with just the data. Obviously, you then need to use actual scouting to to kind of have a real look at the player. The data kind of just gives you a guideline of, of maybe who you should be who you should be looking at and then the, the actual video scouting or live scouting can tell you whether you want to go in for them. But as a kind of mix between a, a kind of eight and a ten, so one of the two midfielders that we've been playing ahead of Moet, more the reach role where it's a bit more attacking, there was... Rothwell at Blackburn. Uh, he's 27 and he's out of contract in the summer. Tavernier, who we just played against for Middlesbrough, 22, and he's got a year left on his contract. Um, Looks an absolute player as well, by the way. Look, it looked brilliant against Tottenham in the FA Cup as well. Exactly. And then there was Scott at Bristol City, who's an 18-year-old, and contract runs out this summer, and his numbers stack up very well. I think he might have a few few bigger clubs in Albion sniffing around him but I think it's somewhere we can a couple of players that we can definitely take a look look at not saying we should sign them all but it's kind of a few that we can have a look at and, and maybe we'll bring them in in the summer forget sign them all Pete one will do we'll take we'll, we'll be thankful for small mercies at this at this point in time so thank you Pete as ever doing Ian Pierce's job for him very good of you that's all we've got time for today we'll be back after the whole game in the forlorn hope that this pre-desperate situation gets a little bit better between now and then. But until then, thanks for listening and up the baggies. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with the McNuggets share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in?
At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.